You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of uh, a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. This is Lecture 8, entitled Supply and Demand, given in Dornach on July 31st, 1922. Today we shall have to correct certain current misconceptions that hinder anyone who wishes to think objectively, in accordance with realities, on matters of economics or to enter with such thinking into the actual course of economic life. An economic science that cannot fructify our practical life is of no real value. The concepts derived from this merely contemplative economic science must always prove rather inadequate. We have already seen that the most important question in economics is that of price. The point will now be to observe prices in the sense that I have indicated the rise or fall or stability of prices, the fact that the prices of certain products are too high or too low for one can have a feeling of these things, indicates whether or not the economic organism is in good order. It must be for the associations to discover from the barometer of prices what is to be done in the economic life as a whole. You are familiar with the point of view, still widely prevalent, according to which nothing can be done in practice with the price problem except to allow the so-called law of supply and demand to take its course. It is true that under the pressure, not so much of economic facts as of the increasingly urgent demands of the social movement, this theory has been shaken, the theory maintained by many others besides Adam Smith, that prices regulate themselves of their own accord through the working of supply and demand. The theory simply states that if the supply is too great, this will of itself lead to supply reduction. The supply will not be maintained at that level. In this way, a regulation of prices will automatically ensue. Similarly, if the demand is too great or too small, it will inevitably follow that the producers will regulate matters so as not to produce too little or too much. Under the influence of supply and demand, it is thus imagined that prices on the market will automatically, as it were, approach a certain stable level. It is important to know whether with such an idea as this we are merely moving in a theoretical world, in a notional system, or whether we are truly entering into realities. And we are certainly not entering into realities. As soon as you really tackle these concepts of supply and demand, you will see that it is quite impossible, economically speaking, even to establish them. As contemplative students of economics, you can do so, no doubt. You can send people into the market to observe how supply and demand are working. With such observations, you are entering deeply enough into the working of the economic processes. Can you make any use of these concepts? In reality, you cannot because you are leaving out in every case what lies behind the processes that you are trying to grasp. 
you look at the market. You see the working of supply and what is called demand. But that does not include what lies behind the phenomenon of supply, nor will it comprise all all that precedes the appearance of demand. Yet it is there that you will find the real economic processes, processes that are only summarized, so to speak, in the market itself. The best evidence of this is the extraordinary fragility of these concepts. If we wish to form proper, useful concepts, our concepts can and must be mobile in relation to life. We must be able to carry such a concept around from one domain of reality to another, and as we do so, the concept itself must change. It must not simply go up in smoke, but that is just what happens with the concepts of supply and demand. Take supply. It is supply when someone brings commodities into the market and offers them for a price. That is supply, you say. But I say, no, it is demand. If someone brings commodities into the market and wants to sell them, in this case, in this case it is unquestionably a demand for money. In effect, if we do not enter further into the economic process, it makes no difference at all whether I have a supply of commodities and a demand for money, or whether I come forward with a demand in the cruder sense. If I wish to develop a demand, I must have a supply of money. Supply of commodities is demand for money, and supply of money is demand for commodities. These are economic realities, since the economic process, insofar as it consists of trade or barter, cannot take place at all unless there are both supply and demand in the case of both buyer and seller. But what the buyer has for supply, money, must also first have been evolved in the economic process somewhere behind the buyer's back, or behind the back of the demand, just as the commodity that appears as a supply must also first have been developed or produced. Our concepts are quite unreal if we imagine that price arises from the interaction of what is ordinarily called supply and demand. In actual fact, price does not develop at all as it is defined by this line of thought. The development of price is undoubtedly influenced by the question of whether the demander can become a supplier of money, or whether perhaps, at a given time in the whole working of the economic process, the person cannot become a supplier of money with respect to a given product. The point is, not only that there must be a certain number of commodities available as supply, but also that there must be a certain number of people able to develop a supply of money for these particular commodities. This will show you at once that we cannot simply speak of an interaction of supply and demand. If we look now not to the concepts which may always be wrongly formed, but to the actual, but excuse me, but to the real facts, the facts of the market, or even of the pure marketless exchange of commodities and money. It is unquestionable that prices evolve between supply and demand. Only the supply and demand are always there, on both sides. This is undoubtedly the case, as a pure matter of fact. The important thing is that supply, demand, and price are three factors, every one of which is primary. 
We cannot merely write that price is a function of supply and demand, or, to speak mathematically, treat S and D as variables, and P, the price, as a third magnitude resulting from the two, that is, P is a function of S and D. No, we must regard all of them, S and D, supply and demand, and P, price, as mutually independent variables, and by that means arrive at another magnitude x. You see, we are coming to a formula. We must not merely suppose that s and d are the independent variables and that the price is a function of the two. No, we have three mutually independent variables that come into mutual interplay and give rise to something new. x equals f of s d p. The price is there between the supply and demand, but it is there in a particular way. We must approach this whole line of thought from another angle. If we do see supply and demand at any given point on the market, in the relationship in which Adam Smith saw them, if it really is so in any particular domain, then it is approximately so for the distribution of commodities as seen from the standpoint of the tradesperson or merchant. Even here, it's not entirely the case. It is absolutely not the case from the standpoint of the consumer nor from that of the producer. But the consumer, something quite different is true. The standpoint of consumers is conditioned by what they have. Between what consumers have and what they give, a relationship arises similar to what arises for the merchant as between supply and demand. Consumers must consider the mutual interaction between price and demand. They demand less when, for their pocket, the price is too high. They demand more when, for their pocket, the price is sufficiently low. Altogether, consumers confine their gaze to price and demand. We may say, therefore, that in the consumer's case we must observe the interaction of price and demand. In the merchant's case we must observe rather the interaction of supply and demand. In the producer's case we shall have to observe the interaction between supply and price. For producers will, in the first place, arrange their supply of commodities according to the prices that are possible in the whole economic process. Thus we may call our first equation P equals F of SD the merchant's equation. Adam Smith applied it to the economic system as a whole. Applied in that way it is incorrect. For we can also form the following equation. We can regard supply S as a function of price in demand. And third, we can indicate demand as a function of supply and price. In this last equation, we shall have D equals F of SP. That is to say, demand is a function of supply and price. This is the producer's equation. In the equation where supply is a function of price and demand, S equals F of P, D, we have the consumer's equation. But, please note, we shall still have made these equations qualitatively different inasmuch as here in the consumer's case the supply is the supply of money 
while in the producer's case it is a supply of commodities. In the case of the merchant, we deal with something that lies midway between money and commodity, price. You see how much more complicated our thoughts on the economic life must be. It is just because we try to get at the ideas so easily and quickly that we have no proper science of economics today. If we wish to enter into the realities, we must ask ourselves what is in this economic life, what really lives in it. I may suppose that what I get for my own needs comes... Uh, there's a slight typo here. Let's try this. Suppose I, I may suppose that what I get for my own needs comes in the first place into my realm. Parenthesis, I will speak of property, in quotes, and ownership, in quotes, at a later stage. At present I will express myself as indefinitely as possible, even so it will suffice to cover the facts. Close parenthesis. When I get for my needs, excuse me, what I get for my needs passes under the conditions that exist today into my realm. I give money or something that I have produced instead of money. That is how things usually happen. In saying this, have we really exhausted the full reality of economic life? After all, I may acquire things otherwise than by giving a commodity for money or money for a commodity. I may acquire money and commodities in a different way. Suppose I steal them. Then, too, I shall have acquired something. If I should steal on a large enough scale, as the old robber barons sometimes did for decades at a time, then a very different economic theory would have to be developed to apply to such conditions. This would be different from the theory that has generally speaking to be developed for our own code of ethics. It may seem to you a crude example when I speak, uh, when I speak of stealing, but what is stealing in reality? To steal is to take something away from someone else without that person being able to prevent it. Or again, when the stealer finds it convenient to not exchange the item for an adequate exchange or return. Compare, for example, this now disreputable concept of stealing with the concept that we, in the German language, signify with a foreign word when we speak of requisitioning or commandeering. Under certain circumstances, one commandeers things. That is to say, one takes something away from people and gives them nothing in return. In other cases, too, it happens in the economic process that something is taken away from people and they receive nothing in return. These are things that we need only mention, for if we were to dwell on them any longer, people would imagine that we were anxious to agitate, and I wish only to develop a science here. I do not wish to agitate. Now assume for a moment that somewhere or other, within a comparatively small region, I establish a social order wherein money is abolished. Instead, I organize a system of raids with the necessary armed forces. Those who possess anything are knocked down or killed, and their possessions taken away from them. Well, what is there to prevent that from happening? There is this, that the others may perhaps defend themselves. In that case, they must have the means to do so, or again, it might not be worthwhile. If my territory is rather small, it would not be worthwhile. All of this shows that something else has to play into the economic process at this point. I cannot, without more ado, take something away from someone else. 
Why not? First, because it must somehow be recognized by my fellow human beings that I should be allowed to keep it. It would by no means be recognized that I should be allowed to keep what I have acquired by killing my fellow human beings in the surrounding country. What is it then that plays into the economic life at this point? It is the life of rights. It is law and order. You cannot really consider the economic process without observing how law plays into it at every point. You cannot think out the economic life, nor can you bring to pass whatever it may be that you intend, without considering this interplay of legal rights and economics. The moment you pass from mere barter to trade, assisted by money, you see directly how the principle of law plays into economics. How, otherwise, could it be possible, in return for a pair of boots, to get not a hat, say, but a dollar, or whatever else it may be? I have saved myself the trouble of giving the merchant a hat. I have given him a dollar instead. I have my boots, he has the dollar. How otherwise could this be possible? If the dollar, even if it were a gold sovereign, were recognized by no one to be a real value, a value for which something could be received again in return, if it were not rightly integrated in the whole economic process, the shoemaker might have collected ever so many dollars, but it would be of no avail. The moment money makes its appearance in economic interactions, we see quite palpably the appearance of the element of law. It is extremely important to bear this in mind. We can look at the social organism as a whole only if we pass from purely economic events to events that take place under the influence of the life of rights. Let us now assume that I have received my pair of boots from the shoemaker and have given him the dollar. Now it might happen that the shoemaker, just after having sold me the pair of boots, suddenly remembered that shoemakers have, at times in the world's history, been something else besides shoemakers. Parenthesis, witness Hans Sachs and Jakob Böhme. Close parenthesis. Having acquired the dollar, he might think of doing something quite different with it, instead of making another pair of boots. He might do anything with it, into which he put his ingenuity, his genius. That dollar would then suddenly have quite a different value for him than the value of a pair of boots. Thus the moment we have transformed the commodity into money, that is to say into a lawful right, the right can either be kept, I use the dollar to buy myself something equal in value to the pair of boots, or through my ingenuity I can do something with the money, to produce an altogether new value in the economic process. It is here that human faculties come in. Individual faculties, which develop quite freely among people, enter in and incorporate themselves in the rights that they acquire with money. In the same way money, which may be regarded in this sense as rights realized, incorporates itself outwardly in the commodity. Thus we have now placed into the organic process that we described provisionally when we spoke of nature, elaborated nature, and labor divided and organized by the spirit, we have now placed into this whole process the principle of law or rights and individual faculties. We have found within the economic process itself a division that is in truth a threefold order, 
e drei Gliederung. Threefold numbering, threefold articulation. It is necessary, however, that we think of this drei Gliederung in the right way. If we observe the economic process, we perceive that just because the things I have now been describing are real facts, just because of this, certain impossibilities are actually realized in economic life. You see, one can also acquire a right by conquest or the like, by having the power to take it. One does not always acquire a right by mere exchange. One can also acquire it by having the opportunity or the power to take it for oneself. Here we have an element in rights that, insofar as it is present, is quite incapable of comparison with commodities. There is no point of contact between commodities and rights. Nevertheless, in the actual economic process, commodities, or the money values representing them, are perpetually being exchanged for rights. Precisely when we pay for land, even when we merely help with our rent to pay for the value of the land, we are paying for a right with a commodity, or with the money that we have received for a commodity. At any rate, we pay for a right's value with a commodity value. When we hire a schoolteacher and give a certain salary, we are, sometimes at least, paying for spiritual cultural faculties with the value of a commodity or a corresponding money value. Thus, in the economic process, there continuously occur exchanges between rights and commodities, between faculties and commodities, and also between faculties and rights. Mutually incommensurable things are exchanged for each other in the economic process. Consider what happens when a man gets paid for an invention that he has patented. He accepts payment for a purely spiritual cultural value that is being paid for in commodity values. There is absolutely nothing that could figure as a standard of comparison in such a case. Here we are touching on an element where life enters quite strongly into the economic process. The situation becomes still more complicated when we introduce the concept of labor. I have already said that the wage laborers do not in reality receive what is generally understood by the idea of wages, but they really sell the products of their labor for dollars and cents to the business person and thus receive payment. It is only through their expert knowledge of the market that the business people give the proper value or at any rate a higher value, to that which they buy from the laborers. Economically considered, the profit is not extracted from the labor as a surplus value. By thinking in terms of economics, we cannot possibly arrive at such a judgment. We can arrive at it, at most, by a moral judgment. The business profit occurs because the laborers are in a less favorable social situation. The products the laborers sell have less value at the point where they sell them than at the point where the business person sells them, who are in a different position. They know the circumstances far better and can sell at a greater advantage. The worker's relation to the business person resembles the case of a man who goes to the market and buys a commodity for a given price. He must buy it there for the simple reason that his circumstances will not allow him, let us say, to buy it anywhere else. 
another person may perhaps be able to buy it for less at another place. The two cases are exactly the same. Economically speaking, what exists between the business person and the wage laborer is simply a kind of market. It does make a certain difference, undoubtedly, whether I am fully conscious that this is the case or whether I imagine that I am paying the laborers for their labor. You may think the difference merely theoretical, but let such a view of things, or two such views, the one and the other, become real. Let them be realized, and you will see how the economic relationships change under the influence of the one view or the other. What happens between human beings is, among other things, the result of their mental outlook, of the ideas they entertain. As our mental outlook changes, it, occur, it, it changes the course of events. Maybe that again. As our mental outlook changes, it changes the course of events. Today the whole proletariat bases its agitation on the idea that labor must be properly paid for. But in fact labor is nowhere paid for. Only the products of labor are paid for. And this, if it were truly understood, would also come to expression in the actuality of price. We cannot say that it makes no difference whether we call something a wage or the price of a commodity. The moment we speak of wages, we imagine that we are paying for labor. Then we go on, then we go on to all the secondary concepts that confuse labor as such with other economic processes that are value-creating. Then the social conflicts arise in a false way. The social conflicts arise in a true way, however, insofar as they arise out of sentiments and feelings. Sentiments and feelings are always in some way right, but we can never correct what ought to be corrected if we do not have the right concepts. This is the fatal situation in social life. Often the grievances arise in a way that is right, but the corrections are made under the influence of false concepts. People evolve these false ideas in every detail and carry them over into their whole conception of the economic process and havoc results. Take a very simple example. A gentleman, uh, this is a true story, once said to me, quote, I'm very fond of sending picture postcards to my friends. I send lots of them, close quote. I said, quote, I am not at all fond of sending picture postcards, and that is, I said, for economic reasons. At that time I had not quite as much to do as I have now. Why? he asked, I said. I said, every time I send a picture postcard I cannot help thinking that perhaps a postman will have to run right up to the fourth floor with it. In short, I cause a change, a redistribution in the economic process. It is not the labor of the postman that matters, but in the postman you cannot easily distinguish the service, the thing done, from the labor. It is the service that we must estimate. If I keep sending picture postcards to my friends, I increase in an uneconomic way the services to be rendered by postmen. That is an economic fallacy, said the other man, for on the assumption that one postman need do only a limited amount, an increase in the number of picture postcards will mean the ad that additional postmen will have to be employed and that they will get paid. So you see, he said, I am really a benefactor to the people who get these jobs. I could only answer, yes, and do you also produce all that they eat? You do not increase the available means of consumption in the very least. 
you merely bring about a redistribution. To employ more postmen is not to increase the available means of consumption. This very idea often brings about the most basic errors in individual cases. Suppose that there is a borough council consisting of people like my friend, as may well happen. Indeed, such people may even become cabinet ministers, and then it will be a cabinet meeting. Then they will say, quote, There are a certain number of people unemployed. Let us put up new buildings or the like. Then people will be provided for. Close quote. Yes, for the next five steps ahead, you have rid yourselves of the problem, but you have still not produced nothing new. The workers as a whole have no more to eat than they had before. If I let one side of the scale sink, the other side must rise. Thus, if you give such instructions, not as part of a whole coherent economic process, but as a mere isolated measure, an economic calamity must necessarily arise on the other side. If we knew how to observe these things, we would be able to see that by making social reforms in this way, really giving means of subsistence subsistence to the destitute or unemployed by having new buildings erected, we will have increased the price of this or that article for a number of other people. In the economic sphere, above all, we must not think short-sightedly, but think all things in connection. We must think things in connection with one another as a whole. That kind of thinking, however, is not at all easy to do, for the simple reason that the economic process is very different from a scientific system. A scientific system, in its totality, can be contained in a single human being, perhaps only an outline, but still it can be contained within a single human being. The economic process, in contrast, can never take place in its totality within a single human being. The economic process can find its reflection only where judgments, proceeding from those who stand in the most varied spheres, are working together. The only possibility of arriving at a real judgment on these things, not a theoretical but a real judgment, is by way of association. In other words, take the three equations, see page 95, once again. Those who are familiar only with the ways and customs of a merchant will always have the first equation in their heads. They will trade under the influence of this equation. They will thus be in a position to know the influence that this equation exerts. Likewise, the consumer who intelligently follows and observes the process of consumption will understand the influence of the second equation, and the producer will know all that is subject to the influence of the third. At this point you may say that surely people are not so unintelligent as not to be able to think beyond their own narrow horizon. Surely those who are only consumers or only merchants can think beyond their own horizon. Yes, that is perfectly right, where one general world outlook is concerned. But in practical economic life, there is no other effective way of knowing what is going on in trade, for example, except to be engaged in trade oneself. You must be in the midst of it. You must be trading. There is no other way. There are no theories about it. Theories may be interesting, but the point is not that you should know how trade goes on in general, but that you should know how the products circulate in the process of trade in Basel and its immediate neighborhood. If you know that, you do not thereby know how they circulate in the Lugano district. 
The point is not that we should know about things in general, but that we should know something in a particular region. If you can form an effective judgment, likewise, as to the higher or lower prices at, at which scythes or other agricultural implements can be manufactured, you do not thereby know the prices at which screws can be manufactured or other such things. The judgments that have to be formed in the economic life must be formed out of immediate, concrete situations, and that is possible only in this way. For definite domains or regions, whose magnitude, as we have seen, will be determined by the economic process itself, associations must be formed, in which all three types of representatives will be present alike. From the most varied branches of the economic life, there must be the representatives of the three things that occur in it, production, consumption, and distribution. It is really tragic that no understanding is found in our time for what is, after all, so simple and so sensible. The moment there is a real understanding, the changes can be made. Not even by the day after tomorrow, but by tomorrow. It is not a question of radical changes, but of seeking for the proper associative union and cooperation in each case. You need only summon the will and the understanding to do it. This is what touches one so painfully. For after all, economic thinking does, to some extent, coincide with moral and religious thinking. To me, for instance, it is quite unintelligible how this way of tackling the economic problem could have been entirely missed by those who are officially in charge of the religious needs of the world. There can be no doubt that during recent times it has become clear that the economic facts are no longer being mastered. The facts have gone beyond the mastery of human beings. Today we stand before this question, how can the situation be mastered? How shall we grapple with it? It must be mastered by human beings, by human beings in association. The science of economics has not kept pace in its concepts with the transition that has actually taken place from the economics of barter to the economics of money and the economics of human faculties. In its essential concepts, economic science still fumbles around within the economics of barter. It continues to regard money as though it were just a substitute for barter. This is not readily admitted. It is implicit, nonetheless, in the prevailing theories. So we have the situation in the older economic systems, though these may no longer appeal to us today, people bartered or exchanged, German tauschen to barter. Then money came in. I do not wish to make a pun at the end of a solemn line of thought, but the genius of language itself is working here. Tauschen, barter, became teuschen, illusion or deceit, and everything became unclear. Today we deceive ourselves in almost all of our economic processes. The tauschen has become a teuschen, the exchange or barter an illusion. I do not mean that there is a deliberate deceit, but that the whole process becomes confused and deceptive. We must first get to the root of things once more and see how the economic processes inwardly take place. The end of Lecture 8